Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 247, Anton Chekhov, Russia's Playwright. Last time, we covered the sad final days of the children of the last Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II. Today, we will talk about the life of Russia's playwright, Anton Chekhov. Anton Pavlovich Chekhov was born on January 29, 1860, in the town of Taganrog, a port on the Sea of Azov in southern Russia. He was the third of six surviving children. His father, Pavel Yegorovich Chekhov, was the son of a former serf and his wife. His father was a highly religious man, but also a very abusive one. Anton's father's abusiveness would mold some of his writings to show the hypocrisy between religion and bad behavior. Thankfully, his mother, Yevgenia, was a good person and a fantastic storyteller. She would entertain the children with tales of her travels with her cloth merchant father all over Russia. As Anton put it, quote, Our talents we got from our father but our soul from our mother. As he recalled his childhood, quote, When my brothers and I used to stand in the middle of the church and sing the trio, may my prayer be exalted, or the archangel's voice, everyone looked at us with emotion and envied our parents. But we, at that moment, felt like little convicts. Later in life, when he discovered that his brother, Alexander, was abusing his children and wife, Anton admonished him, saying, quote, Let me ask you to recall that it was despotism and lying that ruined your mother's youth. Despotism and lying so mutilated our childhood that it's sickening and frightening to think about it. Remember the horror and disgust we felt in those times when father threw a tantrum at dinner over too much salt in the soup and called mother a fool? Chekhov would attend the Greek school in Taganrog and the Taganrog Gymnasium, which has since been renamed the Chekhov Gymnasium, where he was held back for a year at 15 for failing an examination in ancient Greek. By age 16, Chekhov's father had declared bankruptcy as he overextended his debt trying to build a new house. Instead of facing time in debtor's prison, the family headed to Moscow, where the two older sons, Alexander and Nikolai, were attending university. Anton would be left behind to sell what little they had to allow him to finish his schooling. The family would live in poverty, something that broke the spirit of Anton's mother, Evgenia. Chekhov had to pay for his own education, which he managed by private tutoring catching and selling goldfinches, and selling short sketches to the newspapers, among other jobs. He sent every ruble he could spare to his family in Moscow, along with humorous letters to cheer them up. During this challenging time, Chekhov would read works that included those of Cervantes, Turgenev, Goncharov, and Schopenhauer. He also wrote a full-length comic drama, Fatherless, loosely based, of course, on his own father. When he finished school, 
he applied to and was accepted by the medical school at I.M. Seshnov First Moscow State Medical University. It still exists and is the oldest medical school in Russia. Chekhov would also assume the job of supporting his family through his writing. Anton wrote daily, short, humorous sketches and vignettes of contemporary Russian life, many under the pseudonyms such as Antosha Chekonite and Man Without Spleen. His extraordinary output gradually earned him a reputation as a satirical chronicler of Russian street life. By 1882, he was writing for Oskolki Fragments, owned by Nikolai Lakin, one of the leading publishers of the time. In 1884, Anton Chekhov passed his exams to become a licensed physician. However, while he would always claim that being a doctor was his primary job, he would make very little money from it. So instead, he would oftentimes help the poor, which is why in 1885, he came down with tuberculosis. Early in 1886, he was invited to write for one of the most popular papers in St. Petersburg, Novaya Vremya, also known as New Times, owned and edited by the millionaire magnate Alexei Suverin, who paid a rate per line double what he was making before. Suverin was to become a lifelong friend as well as his closest. In 1887, exhausted and suffering the effects of tuberculosis, Chekhov decided to take a trip through Ukraine. It woke him up and inspired him to write a short novella entitled The Step. The story is about a boy sent away from home with two fellow companions, a priest and a merchant who would travel through the steppe of Ukraine. It would be published in a journal known as the Northern Herald. Later in the year, Chekhov was approached by a theater manager about writing a play. Within two weeks, Anton would come up with his first play, Ivanov. He didn't think much of it, but much to his surprise, it was a hit. So much so that it caught the eye of Konstantin Stanislavsky. Up until this time, acting was, as Orlando Figes puts it in his book, Natasha's Dance, extremely amateurish. Stanislavski saw this as an opportunity to lift the art of acting to a new and higher level. He would spend hours in front of a mirror practicing lines, but more importantly, practicing the emotions that would elevate the character. His method of practice would lay the foundation of method acting, something that many of the great actors of today use. Stanislavski joined with Vladimir Nemirovich Danchenko in 1898 to found the Moscow Arts Theater. It would be the stage for almost all of Chekhov's first productions of his plays. Even though his writing was getting attention and making a good living from it, Chekhov didn't think much of his work. He kind of viewed himself as a reporter and not a writer. This would change when he received a letter from noted author Dmitry Grigorovich. After Grigorovich had read Chekhov's short story, The Huntsman, Dmitry wrote, quote, You have real talent, a talent that places you in the front rank among writers in the new generation. 
This stunned Anton. The letter also advised him to write less and concentrate on quality, not quantity. Chekhov took the advice, producing the short story collection At Dusk, which won Chekhov the coveted Pushkin Prize, quote, for the best literary production distinguished by high artistic worth. His star was rising and rising rapidly. Chekhov would make the decision to make Moscow his home for good. While he spent his early years in the slums and poorer neighborhoods, he could now enjoy the finer things in life. Moscow was the inspiration for many of his plays. As Feiges puts it, quote, He wrote sketches of street life, vaudeville satires on love and marriage, and stories about doctors and magistrates, petty clerks, and actors in Moscow's port districts. Feiges goes on to write, quote, Chekhov was the first major Russian writer to emerge from the penny press. 19th century writers such as Dostoevsky and Tolstoy had written for the serious thick periodicals that combined literature with criticism and political commentary. His concise written style, for which he is so famed, was fashioned by the need to write for commuters on the train. With his wealth growing, Chekhov bought a small estate south of Moscow known as Melikova. While it was, by all accounts, an amazingly beautiful place, Moscow was Anton's muse. During the following years, Chekhov would write some of his most notable works, like Three Years in 1895 and Lady with the Dog, using Moscow as a backdrop to their stories. Three Sisters, released in 1901, would, as Feiges puts it, quote, Moscow becomes a symbol of happiness so lacking in the sisters' lives. They longed to go to Moscow, where they lived as children, and were happy when their father was alive. But they remained stuck in a provincial town, unable to escape, as youthful hopes give way to the bitter disappointments of middle age. One of Chekhov's gifts to the art of acting and playwriting was his concept of Chekhov's gun. He was quoted as saying, Remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. The idea is that a dramatic principle requires that every element in a narrative be necessary and irreplaceable and that everything else be removed. It was first found in Ivanov, and it continued throughout the rest of his literary career. More modern directors like Alfred Hitchcock used it all the time, but one of the best examples is from the movie Back to the Future. Screenwriters Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gill layered Back to the Future with plenty of Chekhov's guns. But the most prominent is the town clock tower. This is when the gun is presented. Early in the movie, Marty and his girlfriend Jennifer are walking through town when a volunteer approaches them to campaign for saving the Hill Valley clock tower. She tells the teenagers it hasn't worked for 30 years 
because it was struck by lightning. And Marty gives her a coin, so she'll leave them alone. Then the gun is loaded when Marty accidentally travels back in time to 1955. He notices that the clock is actually functional. A quick, amusing, and seemingly inconsequential shot. The gun is fired at the movie's climax when Doc figures out how to send Marty back to the future. Their plan hinges on Marty's knowledge of exactly when a bolt of lightning will hit the clock tower. Lightning strikes, Marty returns to 1985, and the clock stops working. That is Chekhov's gun. So let's go back to Anton. In 1890, he undertook a grueling journey by train, horse-drawn carriage, and river stream steamer to the Russian Far East and the Katorga, or penal colony on Sakhalin Island, north of Japan, where he spent three months. His letters to his sister Maria were considered some of his finest writing. His description of the town of Tomsk is legendary. Chekhov wrote, quote, Tomsk is a very dull town. To judge from the drunkards whose acquaintances I have made, and from the intellectual people who have come to the hotel to pay their respects to me, the inhabitants are very dull, too. What really got to him, though, was the conditions of the penal colony and the treatment of the convicts. Anton would state, quote, There were times I felt I saw before me the extreme limits of man's degradation. Forced prostitution of women, floggings, and embezzlement were just some of the things he saw and wrote about. Chekhov published Ostrov Sakhalin the island of Sakhalin, which was more of a work of social science, not just literature. The other story he wrote was entitled The Murder. He writes about an incident where the murderer Yakov loads coal in the night while longing for home. Others would study his works about Sakhalin to this present day. During his time at his retreat at Milikovo, Chekhov would don his physician's hat. Day after day, people would come from miles away to ask him for help. While it was tiring, it would distract him from writing. It would provide him with countless characters for his plays. For example, his brother Mikhail would write this about Anton, quote, From the first day that Chekhov moved to Melikovo, the sick began flocking to him from 20 miles around. They came on foot or were bought in carts, and often he was fetched to patients at a distance. Sometimes from early in the morning, peasant women and children were standing before his door, waiting. In 1894, Chekhov began writing his play, The Seagull, in a lodge he had built in the Orchid at Melikovo. It bombed when the play was first played on October 17, 1896. The audience booed him which shocked and angered Anton. Chekhov decided he had no more use for the theater. Luckily for us, his old friends Nimarovich Danchenko and Stanislavsky thought they could better present Chekhov's work. They were right, and it inspired Anton to continue. In March 1897, 
Chekhov suffered a major hemorrhage of the lungs while on a visit to Moscow. He refused medical attention, but was finally persuaded to enter a clinic. The doctors diagnosed tuberculosis on the upper part of his lungs and ordered a change in his manner of life. This would inspire him to buy an estate in Yalta. It is at the White Dacha where Chekhov meets Leo Tolstoy and Maxim Gorky. While not enamored of their works, Anton still respected their art and their friendship. It is here where we wrote The Three Sisters and The Cherry Orchard. Known as Russia's most elusive bachelor, Chekhov would quietly marry Olga Knieper on May 25, 1901. The wedding was a small affair as, curiously, Anton was scared of big weddings. She was a former protege and sometime lover of Nemirovich Danchenko, whom Chekhov had first met at rehearsals for the Seagull. Their relationship would be a long-distance one. Chekhov once wrote to his friend Suvarin, quote, By all means, I will be married if you wish it. But on these conditions... Everything must be as it has been here there too. That is, she must live in Moscow while I live in the country, and I will come and see her. I promise to be an excellent husband, but give me a wife who, like the moon, won't appear in my sky every day. While at Yalta, Chekhov wrote The Lady with the Dog. It depicts what at first seems a casual liaison between a cynical married man and an unhappy married woman who meet while holidaying in Yalta. Neither expects anything lasting from the encounter. Unexpectedly, though, they gradually fall deeply in love and risk scandal in the security of their family lives. One of the things I've mentioned in past episodes is that everybody should go to a Russian Orthodox Easter service once in their lives. Chekhov would sum up his experience in his 1886 story, Easter Night. Quote, Nowhere could the excitement and commotion be felt as keenly as in the church. At the door, there was a relentless wrestle going on between the ebb and flow. Some people were coming in and others were going out. But then they were soon coming back again, just to stand for a while before leaving again. There were people scuttling from one place to another and then hanging about as if they were looking for something. Waves started at the door and rippled through the church, disturbing even the front rows where there were serious, worthy people standing. There could be no question of any concentrated praying. There was no praying at all. In fact, just a kind of sheer, irrepressible, childlike joy looking for a pretext to burst forth and be expressed in some kind of movement, even if it was only the shameless moving about and the crowding together. You are struck by the same kind of extraordinary sense of motion in the Easter service itself. The heavenly gates stand wide open and all the side altars. Dense clouds of smoky incense hang in the air around the candelabra. Wherever you look, there are lights, 
brightness and candles spluttering everywhere. There are no readings planned. The energetic, joyful singing does not stop until the end. After each song in the canon, the clergy change their vestments and walk around with a censer. And this is repeated every ten minutes or so. While this is a beautiful depiction of a Easter church service in the Russian Orthodox Church, Chekhov was by no means a religious man. Leo Tolstoy visited him to help him spiritually with his possible impending death while he was recovering from his lung hemorrhage. What shocked Tolstoy was that Chekhov was not worried about it. And what surprised Tolstoy was that Anton did not believe in the afterlife, something he called delusions of immortality. This is not to say that Chekhov was an atheist. No, he wasn't. On the contrary, he loved the church's rituals, kept numerous icons on his walls, and often went to church. What drew him to the Russian Orthodox Church was their relationship with the peasant. As he once said to a friend, quote, the village church is the only place where the peasant can experience something beautiful. Only Leo Tolstoy used religious characters more than Anton Chekhov. His works, The Bishop, The Student, On the Road, and Ward Number 6 all had people in them searching for faith. Chekhov's story, On the Road, first published in 1886, discussed the Russian yearning and need for faith. Quote, As far as I can judge, speaking for myself, and from all that I have seen, this talent is present in the Russian people to the highest degree. Russian life represents an endless series of beliefs and enthusiasms. But it has not, if you ask my advice, it has not yet gone anywhere near not believing or rejecting belief. If a Russian person does not believe in God, it means he believes in something else. By 1901, Chekhov's health began to deteriorate. His fight with tuberculosis was taking a terrible toll on him. Finally, in 1903, he knew he was losing the battle. In his play, Uncle Vanya, the closing lines describe his feelings about dying. Quote, when our time comes, we shall die submissively. And over there, in the other world, we shall say that we have suffered, that we've wept, that we've had a bitter life, and God will take pity on us. In 1902, he wrote to the great founder of the Ballet Russe, Diaghilev, quote, Modern culture is but the beginning of a work for a great future, a work which will go on, perhaps for 10,000 years, in order that mankind may, even in the remote future, come to know the truth of a real God. That is, not by guessing, not by seeking Dostoevsky, but by perceiving clearly as one perceives that twice two is four. Before he died, Chekhov, speaking with Ivan Bunin, said that he thought people might go on reading his writings for seven years. Why seven? asked Bunin. Well, seven and a half, Chekhov replied. That's not bad. 
I've got six years to live. But unfortunately, he didn't have that much longer as he died in the German spa town of Badenweiler in the Black Forest in Germany on July 14th, 1904, at the young age of 44. His death and what he did right before he died is legend. His wife Olga recounts his last moments. Quote, Anton set up unusually straight and said loudly and clearly, although he almost knew no German, Ich sterbe. I'm dying. The doctor calmed him, took a syringe, gave him an injection of camphor, and ordered champagne. Anton took a full glass, examined it, smiled at me, and said, It's a long time since I drank champagne. He drained it and lay quietly on his left side, and I had just had time to run to him and lean across the bed and call to him, but he had stopped breathing and was sleeping peacefully as a child. Anton Chekhov's legacy is a long and powerful one. Raymond Carver, an excellent short story writer in his own right, once said about Chekhov, quote, Chekhov's stories are as wonderful and necessary now as when they first appeared. It is not only the immense number of stories he wrote, for few, if any, writers have ever done more. It is the awesome frequency with which he produced masterpieces, stories that drive us well as delight and move us that lay bare our emotions in ways only true art can accomplish. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time. And this is the next time that I hadn't expected to write anything for. I was going to take a couple weeks off for Christmas and New Year's. But I decided, you know, I've never done an episode about Christmas and New Year's in Russia and its traditions. So that's what I'm going to be doing next week. I will publish it on Christmas Eve next Saturday or Sunday, depending on, you know, my timing. But it's an interesting episode. I really enjoyed researching it. And I got to tell you, it was really, really difficult throughout my entire library. I found very little about Christmas and New Year's and how it was celebrated. But I was able to find enough to give you a completely full episode. So we're going to have that for next week, and then I'm going to take a week off until uh, coming back on January 8th of 2023. Well, I hope all of you have a, just a marvelous Christmas, a happy holidays. And so, you know, until next time, das vidanya y spasiba za manya. <laughs>